Welcome to episode eight of the Regulation Tomorrow podcast brought to you by Norton Rose Fulbright. I'm Arup Sen and I'm joined as always by Simon Lovegrove. Hello, Simon. Hello, Arup. In this month's podcast, we will look at the future of financial services in the UK with Jonathan Herbst and Hannah Meeking, updating us all on Brexit after looking quite a few months now. Uh, we will then uh, discuss product categorization under the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, or SFDR, bit of a mouthful, uh, with Imogen Garner, Iona Wright, and Daniel Nevsat. And Simon will be speaking to Flutke van den Bogard from our Brussels office about EU proposals for a new digital identity wallet. But before we kick off with all of that, over to Simon with the big RT stories from this month. Thanks, Arup. There's been quite a few important developments this month that we've covered on the Regulation Tomorrow blog. There's probably too many to list for this podcast, but it's worth just focusing on two key areas, fintech and also ESG. On the fintech side of things, it's important to note that the Basel Committee has recently issued a consultation on the prudential treatment of crypto asset exposures and also closer to the home the Bank of England has brought out a discussion paper setting out its thoughts on new forms of digital money which include both systemic stable coins and a UK central bank digital currency. On the ESG side of things there's also been a lot of developments including the Bank of England publishing its climate biennial exploratory scenario this explores the resilience of the largest UK banks and insurers to the physical and transition risks associated with climate change. On the EU side of things, published in the official journal has been the EU Taxonomy Climate Delegated Act, and internationally, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures have issued a consultation on guidance on climate-related metrics, targets, and transition plans, and a consultation on a technical supplement on measuring portfolio alignment. Just moving to a, a couple of other things, um, readers of the blog would have noticed that I've posted the usual monthly horizon scanning article, which I hope they find helpful. There have also been a couple of RT Plus podcasts this month that both you and I have worked on. In case people miss them, we have podcasts covering the FCA consultation on the proposed new consumer duty, and a lot of firms are very interested in that consultation paper. We've also had a podcast on the FCA's discussion paper on the proposed new financial promotion rules for high-risk investments, and we've had one covering the FCA's recent speech on outcomes-based regulation. Also, in terms of briefing notes, we've issued two this month, one called the Future of UK Regulation, 10 Things to Think About, and another on the new European commodity derivatives regime. All of that was in addition to the June 40-minute briefing on governance, which I know you were very involved with, the recording to which is now also on the blog. Amazing. Thank you so much, Simon. An awful lot, actually, uh, that we covered this month, as you rightly point out. Uh, and thanks also for reminding everyone about, about RT+. And uh, for listeners out there that are not aware of what that is, uh, those are the uh, spin-off podcasts uh, that we release as and when a particular issue comes out. And so if you want to make sure you never miss those, make sure you subscribe on your preferred platform to the Regulation Tomorrow podcast. Without further ado, let's kick off the show. And it's over to Simon, who'll be speaking to Jonathan Herbst and Hannah Meekin about Brexit and the future of financial services in the UK. To kick off this month's podcast, we thought we would get a brief update on Brexit, given that we haven't done one for a while. 
I'm joined as ever by our Global Head of Financial Services, Jonathan Herbst, and also Hannah Meekin, a partner in our financial services team. Jonathan, starting off, it seems that on the EU front, things have remained pretty quiet. Uh, hi, Simon. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, silence in some cases is golden. I'm not sure that's true in this case. Um, I mean, I think as everybody knows, we haven't seen the um, you know memorandum that was due, the cooperation agreement uh, that allegedly is still in draft. It is pretty clear that macro relations between the two sides, nothing to do with financial services, are not great. So I think it's fair to say that we're not expecting to see the MOU anytime soon. And even when we do, as we all know, it's not really going to grant equivalence either way. So really, we're back where we started in terms of the smokers board. It's country by country. Um, the one, you know, in terms of access to the EU, the one interesting thing I'd say that we are beginning to see much more of is the UK end of things. You know, what will the UK do? Uh, what will its kind of approach be? We can come on to that in a minute, but it's a two-way street would be my summary. So in terms of equivalence, no great progress yet. Thanks, Jonathan. I just want to pick up on a point you just mentioned a moment ago. Do you want to just expand um, on the UK and its open borders approach? Yeah, thanks, Simon. Uh, look, it's, it, it's a strange situation we're in because the current UK regime is almost unique in the developed uh, countries in having a very, very generous exclusion for business coming in from overseas is not absolutely comprehensive. And I think it's one of the misunderstandings. We've, we've all spent the last five years thinking so much about access to the EU that people are beginning to wake up to the fact that particularly at the end of the transitional regime, they do need to think about access to the UK. And there are limits. So even at the moment, you know, if you are dealing with retail clients, for example, then the overseas person exclusion and our very generous regime, you know, broadly speaking, is not of much use to you with some exceptions. So that's point one. Point two, which I think is the other really interesting one, is what is the UK going to do going forward? And the truthful answer is we don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure that the policymakers know the answer to that yet. There is clearly, and the Treasury had its consultation some months ago now, you know, there is clearly a policy debate to be had around what the new regime should look like. Should it change? Should it not change? But I think it is definitely something firms need to be thinking about very carefully. But as I say, for European firms who are coming towards the end of the transitional period and often now getting their landing slots if they're not banks, this is now a real issue. And the other issue we've seen is where you've got banks uh, obviously may have got reauthorised in the UK, but need to be thinking about other entities in their group that do cross-border business into the UK. And I'd, I'd add just a third point very briefly, which is, you know, even in the world we are now uh, going to be in as of next year with the end of the transitional period, what does it actually look like uh, in certain examples? And, and let me just give one case, which is really interesting. Systematic internalised is fairly technical it's clear now that, for example, if you've got a European bank with a branch in the UK, uh, UK buy-side firms, if they want to not be doing reporting, uh, transparency reporting, uh, they have to be dealing with a UK SI after the end of the transitional period. And I think that's just one example of the issues people need to start thinking about. So to summarise it, Brexit's not, not closed as a project on these issues. In some ways, it's just beginning. Thanks, Jonathan. And, and now, Hannah, I just want to turn to you. Um, it's pretty clear that the UK has started to do its own thing in a number of places, and regulatory divergence is becoming a fact of life. 
And I think it's particularly true in the market space. Do you want to say a few words? Yes, absolutely. Um, we are definitely seeing the UK authorities being prepared to think about what works for UK markets and acting accordingly, even if that results in different requirements than we have been used to as part of the EU. Um, some of those changes have been well understood for some time, such as the fact that the UK is not implementing the settlement failure regime from the CSD regulation, and that the UK will not um, implement the uh, non-financial counterparty uh, phase of reporting under the securities financing transaction regulation. Um, th these are instances where the UK doesn't share the perceived benefit of these changes when balanced against the potential cost or risk to the markets. Um, of course, this doesn't mean that UK firms don't need to think about some of these requirements. They may still be relevant to aspects of the UK firm's business, and equally, they may still have entities in their group that are directly subject to those requirements within the EU. And in many cases, you know, it isn't that the UK is seeking to achieve a fundamentally different policy outcome to what Europe is doing, but rather that we think there's a more effective, efficient or proportionate way to get there. So, for example, in relation to primary markets, the Hill Review has identified some potential changes to the prospectus rules, whereby the UK would tailor them better to the type of transaction that's being undertaken. And on secondary markets, there are ongoing discussions and consultations about changes that could be made to the MIFID II regime to ensure that it better achieves its intended outcomes. And many of those actually are aligned to amendments that are being made on the European side as well. But the UK is not simply following the quick fix. They are being open-minded about what the UK really needs. And there are many other examples of kind of greater or lesser divergences, including, for example, the investment firm prudential regime in the UK and the benchmarks regulation. That's great, Hannah. And you've also been working with colleagues on a NRF divergence tracker. Yes, that's right. Um, I was going to mention that, you know, it's important to remember that divergence isn't just about where the UK is diverging from its uh, previous regime, but also on the European side of, of legislation that is developing as well as, as it always has done. And so the divergence is really kind of twofold. And that makes it, I think, even more challenging for firms to be able to kind of keep up to speed with changes that are happening and, and which ones are particularly relevant to their businesses and then how to implement them in those changes in such a way that they can operate on a pan-European UK basis. Um, and so, as you say, Simon, we have been developing a divergence tracker product to help clients try to, to manage that process. That's great. That's really interesting. Many thanks to both Jonathan and Hannah. Arup, over to you. In this section of the podcast, I am delighted to be joined by Imogen Garner, Iona Wright and Daniel Nevsat. And we are going to be talking about product categorization under SFDR. Now, before we dive into the detail, Imogen, could you perhaps refresh our memories as to the background around SFDR and what's this really speaking to? Yes, of course, Arup, and hello to everyone that's listening. So I suppose the first thing to say about the SFDR is that it's been big news during the past year or more. And so I expect most listeners are going to have some level of familiarity with it. But just to recap very briefly, the SFDR, so the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, is a key part of the EU's action plan on sustainable finance. And there are other 
really significant elements of that plan, not least the taxonomy regulation, which has also been making a, a big splash. And the action plan itself is part of a drive by the EU to see more investment channeled into sustainable investment in support of the EU achieving its own uh, 2050 net zero goals. So the SFDR is all about disclosure and transparency to that end. Brilliant, thanks for that. It's a very helpful background. So who does the uh, SFDR apply to? And are there any differences or particularities uh, on the application of SFDR in a UK context? Um, as compared to how it might apply in the EU? Okay, so look, the really basic position is that SFDR applies to investment managers. So AFIMS use its management companies, firms that do segregated mandates, but also applies to firms that do, um, that provide investment advice. And so this is why asset managers in particular have had to be grappling in the run-up to a deadline um, that was in uh, early in March this year to comply with high-level disclosure requirements under the new rules. Now, of course, SFDR is a piece of European law and not one that in the end got onshored in the UK post-Brexit. And so the SFDR doesn't directly apply to UK managers unless they're marketing funds into the EU under national private placement rules. However, Having said that, lots of UK asset managers will have a European business that's going to be directly in scope, and UK managers will be indirectly impacted where they act as delegated managers, for instance, or in, in scope fund structures like a, uh, a USITS or an AFE uh, set up in Luxembourg, or where they have EU segregated mandate clients that are themselves within scope. There are all sorts of additional wrinkles too. So um, for instance, the SFDR requirements, they're split by, between those that apply at entity level, so at the manager or financial advisor level, and those that apply at product levels, at the level of the managed account or the A for the USITS. And sometimes where you have a self-managed fund, for instance, that fund is gonna to have to comply with both the entity level and the product level requirements. And we've been looking at that a, a lot um, sort of recently with um, various listed closed-ended structures that we're working on that are self-managed. Another area of uncertainty is where you have a non-EU firm marketing into the EU under national private placement rules, and there's still a fair amount of uncertainty around the application of the requirements in that context, all of which is sort of pending clarification at European Commission level. And as is often the case where we have uncertainty, what you see is that the market starts stepping in with its own interpretation. So, for example, we know that some non-EUA firms are taking the view that the entity level requirements do not apply to them, and instead they're only complying with the product level requirements, and given that the only way that they're in scope is by virtue of marketing under national private placement rules into the EU. And at, at this stage, I mean, we, we sort of see that as an interpretation that is potentially supportable for some types of funds, but maybe it's a little bit less comfortable for those that have ESG as their objective or are marketed on the basis of ESG characteristics. So your Article 8 funds, your light green funds, or your Article 9 funds, your dark green funds. And I've, I've sort of, in saying that now, touched upon one of the biggest areas of contention and commentary at the moment, which is how you decide which of those parts a particular fund should be put in. And I know 
um, Dan and I own and my colleagues are going to say a little bit more on this. But I suppose one thing I just wanted to flag at this stage is that if only it were the case that there was only a need to consider the EU institutions interpretations in all this. Actually, we've been seeing some member states developing their own views and the French AMF in particular has been taking its own pretty strict approach in all this around how funds can be classified to avoid greenwashing. Right, thank you. So it does seem like a very, it's quite a, quite a nuanced picture there, really, depending on uh, the type of entity uh, and jurisdiction. And also now you're saying that, you know, you've got these national national regimes starting to uh, sort of um, show some divergence as well. So very, very interesting picture there. Um, Iona, if we turn to you now, um, could you give us an overview of product categorization and um, what are we seeing in this uh, in the market at the moment? Sure, and thanks, Arup. Um, in light of the indirect UK application points flagged by Imogen, by now we've really seen that most of the bigger UK managers are well underway in classifying their funds and segregated mandates into Articles 6, 8 and 9 SFDR products. Just to recap really on these categories, which Dan will touch on in a little bit more detail later, Article 6 products are those where sustainability risk may be integrated into investment decisions or may not be relevant at all and that do not fall within Articles 8 or 9. This is therefore the baseline for products that are not promoting ESG characteristics, as Article 8 or like green products do, and do not have sustainable investment as their core objective, as is the case for Article 9 or dark green products. There are obviously some clear-cut cases as to those products that fall within Article 6. For example, we've been working with funds investing in shipping assets and real estate, where there has been no real argument that they are Article 6 funds, even though they may take into account certain ESG factors, such as the reduction of carbon emissions in shipping. As regards Article 8 and 9 classification, we have seen some of the largest asset managers classify around 20% of their fund range as Articles 8 or above, with this percentage rising to 60 to 90% for ESG specialist managers. The non-specialist managers have indicated that they have taken a cautious approach and plan to categorise more funds as sustainable later this year. This really will be to combat concerns around greenwashing, which is potentially a real reputational risk for managers that are overzealous with their product categorisation, along with being an FCA risk area for consumer harm. In addition, it is worth flagging that senior management responsibility is creeping into the ESG space more and more now, with the PRA requiring the boards of dual regulated firms by the end of 2021, so this year, to have allocated responsibility for identifying and managing financial risks from climate change to the relevant existing senior management functions, and also to ensure these responsibilities are included in their statement of responsibilities. As a result of this increasing scrutiny, we are advising that managers start with Article 6 and then build up the case for moving to Articles 8 and 9, rather than over-categorising to begin with and then having to climb down from this categorisation later on. This could clearly be potentially very embarrassing from both a PR and investor and client relationship perspective. Thanks, Iona. And um, you know, I think that really evidences kind of what a what a sort of knotty um, kind of issue this is, and 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 some of the uh, the difficulties that that are emerging from this. The risks of of, of incorrect classification here are, are self evident. Um, Daniel, you know, building on what Iona has said there. Um, what would you say are some of the, the common issues, misunderstandings around product categorization um, uh, that she's sort of spoken about there? And 
you know, what is likely to be the next hot topic after product categorization in this in this broad space? Well, I think there, there's been a, a considerable level of confusion among firms in the market around class, uh, classifying their products into articles 6, 8 or 9 of SFDR. And I think the main reason for that is that there's no prescribed list of investment approaches or strategies that can be in, included or excluded from articles 8 or 9. Um, so firms have been viewing Article 8 funds as potentially capturing a, a wide range of ESG strategies from funds with exclusionary strategies and best in class to those pursuing specific ESG objectives. And Article 9 funds, on the other hand, are considered to be, I suppose, a narrower subset comprising um, the funds that are pursuing specific thematic and impact investing strategies. And it also seems likely that Article 9 products are intended to invest almost exclusively in sustainable investments, with the exception of investments such as uh, hedging instruments. And I think just to draw out an interesting example around um, this area, and particularly um, in the context of Article 8, is um, the, the status of um, simple exclusionary strategies. So the European Supervisory Authorities advised in their consultation paper on ESG disclosures back in April 2020, the exclusionary strategies as well as best in class could be sufficient to bring a fund within the scope of Ask Away. However, um, the standard for Ask Away that we've seen from some ESG specialist managers in the market has been much higher than simple exclusionary strategies. So for example, those around tobacco, armaments, et cetera. And they viewed those types of strategies as being too basic um, and therefore um, that no, more should be needed to categorize a product under Ask Away. So it's quite interesting, this kind of dynamic where we've seen that the regulators have said that exclusionary strategies are enough, but not enough for market leading firms. Um, so it kind of shows that the market is in some ways front running the regulators in the absence of clear regulatory guidance in this area. And, um, and more generally, I think um, one of the concerns is that SFDR is being used really as a marketing exercise or a labeling system by many firms when really it's, it's simply a, a, a disclosure framework. So articles six, eight and nine aren't labels as such, but rather categories requiring varying levels of disclosure of the ESG credentials of their financial products. So the, the idea is, is, is that where a product pursues certain ESG objectives, the manager then needs to make the required disclosures in order to, to make it transparent that they're actually trying to achieve those objectives with the investment approach and strategy. But despite this, some firms are, are aiming to push all of their funds into either Ask 8 or 9 in order to gain a comp competitive ad advantage. And they're, they're essentially trying to retrofit their existing fund ranges, which may be non-ESG um, within these two categories. And as, as Iona mentioned, um, this approach of using SFDR as a marketing exercise is, is quite risky. And there is really what regulators want to see in this area are genuine attempts to pursue ESG objectives by firms where they're promoting those types of objectives. And there is the concern that they'll take um, action where they suspect potential greenwashing. Now, the next issue that firms will be grappling with is, is how to perform the assessment of principal adverse impacts of investment decisions on sustainability factors. So when uh, at the point of 10th of March this year, when the SFDR came into effect, Firms had very limited information on the sustainability indicators against, against which to disclose as the RTS hadn't yet been finalized. So many firms decided to just explain the reasons for non-compliance with a view to potentially complying later on down the line. So leading up to the application date of the 1st of January 2022 for the RTS, 
um, firms will probably be quite rushed to gather all of the ESG data on principal adverse impacts and then make the relevant disclosures. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this section of the Regulation Tomorrow podcast. I'm joined today by Flupka van den Bogart from our government relations team in Brussels. Hello, Flupka. Hello, Simon. Uh, today, Flupka, I want to just touch base with you. The European Commission has published a new legislative proposal establishing a framework for a European digital identity. Um, the proposal establishes a legislative framework for the issuance of digital identity wallets by EU member states. So I want to start with you. Uh, what exactly is a digital identity wallet? Yes, uh, so a digital identity wallet should be seen as a digital storage space for EU citizens, uh, which they can actually fill with personal data and documents. This could include things like personal data, uh, such as your address or your age, but also documents such as uh, licenses and diplomas. You can think, for example, about your university diploma or your driving license. When interacting with public and large private entities online, uh, citizens can use this wallet to access their services, in particular those services that require strong user authentication. Examples of the of services are accessing your online bank account, uh, doing bank, bank transactions, uh, submitting tax declarations with tax authorities, enrolling in education or training, or for example, renting a car. With the wallet, uh, citizens will be able to prove that their identity were necessary to access their services online, or to share their digital documents, or simply prove a specific personal attribute, such as age, without revealing their identity or other personal details. EU citizens using a wallet should at all times have full control of the data they share, so they don't have to share all the data with, with a certain public or private authority. And in general, having a digital identity wallet should remain voluntary for EU citizens. Thanks, Flupka. That's really interesting. One other thing I noticed about the proposal as well is that it amends the current EU legal framework for trusted digital identities. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about that? So in 2014, the European Union uh, actually published a regulation which was called the European Electronic Identification and Trust Services Initiative, or the EIDAS regulation. And this 2014 regulation provided the basis for cross-border electronic identification, authentication, and website certification within the EU. Yet, unlike the current proposal, which we just discussed, uh, this regulation does not require member states to provide a digital identification system for their citizens, or to ensure that the system can be used in other EU member states as well. And in addition, the 2014 regulation does not take into account the use of such identification for private services, uh, for example, private companies or financial institutions, or with mobile devices. So today we can see that only 19 notified EID schemes are used within 14 member states, which only cover around 60% of the uh, of the members of the EU population. So take up is slow, and that's why the European Commission wants to establish this more this more um, this more obligatory system. So um, the European Digital Identity Regulation is of substantial relevance to the financial sector as well as this digital wallets can be used for strong customer identification. 
This could be useful for financial institutions in respect of a large number of compliance processes, such as PYC, know your customer, and anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing issues. Thanks, Flutberg. So the European Digital Identity Regulation tackles a multitude of issues and financial institutions need to get it on their radar. One last question for you, timeline, Flutka. Uh, what are the next steps? Yes, so the uh, legislative proposal was published on the, on the 3rd of June. Uh, of course, the Commission already on beforehand consulted with the member states on how this should look like. So hopefully the member states have already made up their minds a little bit on uh, what they want to do with it. It will now go into the ordinary legislative procedure. So both the European Parliament and the Council will, uh, uh, will look at it and uh, propose amendments. And we expect the proposal to be finally adopted in about a year. Uh, so in Q2 or Q3 2022. Um, the regulation uh, under the current proposal will become applicable as of one year after publication in the EU financial official journal. And in the meantime, the European Commission will work with the member states on a toolbox to implement this uh, European digital identity framework by September 2022, so that uh, the Commission can publish this toolbox that the member states can use in establishing those European digital wallets in October 2022. Uh, so once a technical framework has been agreed, it can be tested in pilot projects, and then if everything goes according to the Commission's plan, it will become fully applicable in about uh, mid-2023 or the uh, beginning of 2024. Thanks, Flipka. That's really, really helpful. You're very welcome. That brings this episode of the Regulation Tomorrow podcast to a close. Thanks to all of our speakers and thanks to you for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on further episodes of the Regulation Tomorrow podcast and also Regulation Tomorrow Plus. We'll catch you next time.